Hey, U.S. Cellular customers, I've got good news, so don't hit skip forward just yet. I'm talking about their special customer event, Us Days. What's Us Days? It means exclusive offers just for their customers, just to say thanks, like up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. No, I didn't misread that. That's up to $1,200 off. They must really like you all. Us Days at U.S. Cellular. Exclusive offers just for you, just to say thanks. Right now, U.S. Cellular customers could get up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. Visit uscellular.com for terms and restrictions. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. The following program is an MLWRadio.com production. Today we're going to be talking about wrestling with debt. Well, when our listeners need to save some money, what do they need to do? Listen, stop asking them fool questions. He ain't got the answer today, baby. Take it from the second most recognizable athlete in the world today. Savewithbruce.com can be beat. They lower your monthly payments by five, four, six, eight, seven hundred dollars a month, baby. You got credit card debt, car loan, a second mortgage. There ain't no problem right here at SaveWithBruce.com. Punkinhead gonna take care of you today. You understand me, baby? Ooh, yeah, we don't need perfect credit, uh huh? Even with credit scores in the 500, SaveWithBruce.com makes saving money easy. Dig it? NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Mother. Welcome to World Championship Wrestling, the major leagues of professional wrestling. What a program we have for you today because we're a part of WHW, What Happened When, talking about the legendary Four Horsemen. And now, let's go to the ring, and here is Hey Hey, Conrad Thompson. Hey Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When with Tony Schiavone. Tony, what's going on, man? How are you? Conrad, what's up? How you feeling? You doing okay? I got You've been awake for a long time. You're not tired. You're getting plenty of sleep during the week. Well, actually, none of the above, but, man, I am so excited for this. It's more horseman talk. As you know, uh, I am a huge Four Horsemen fan, as is everyone listening to this. And the idea that we get to go back and kind of dig a little deeper after what I thought was maybe one of our best episodes last week, I'm excited. What did you think about last week's show, Tony? Uh, it, It brought back some great memories. I'm very excited about this episode. I thought we touched on a number of things that were important to not only the horsemen and to the fans, but into pro wrestling 
in general. When I go back and think about the years of pro wrestling, uh, there is no question to me, and I think you would agree, and I think all our slapsticks out there would agree, that the horsemen kind of set the standard for groups. They set the standard for the NWO and... I don't know. Give me some other incarnations that well, they set the, the standard for. All of them. The NWO, the DX. It, I love you, just the filthy animals. Well, since we're going there, the Dungeon of Doom. I mean, yep. without the four horsemen, where would the Dungeon of Doom really be? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it would just Thanks be, for- it'd be silly guys putting fins on their head, you know, saying, yes, no, yes, no. But thanks to the horsemen, I mean, they battled with Hulk Hogan for years. And it was, it was so well done, that Dungeon of Doom, that it kind of reminded me of the Four Horsemen. It was like, is that Dusty Rhodes? Is that Hulk Hogan? Is that Ric Flair? So, uh, can I interrupt on? you here? You're so full of shit. Well, you know. You, you are so full of shit. Why, within the first three minutes of this program, talking about the Horsemen, the Elite, would you bring up the Dungeon of Doom well, and Two Foot One Kevin Sullivan? First of all, shout out to Kevin Sullivan, who I know listens to the show. So roll I know he does that. too. He's a great and, guy. And that's why I said that. Uh, so Shorty, I believe his friends call him, and I think I'm allowed to do that now. Um, I think that the only reason I thought of that is because when we were trying to think of what we could compare the horseman to, the yeah. guy who was there to see it all, the first thing that springs to his mind is the NWO, and I think that's natural. But the mm-hmm. second thing is the goddamn filthy animals. <laughs> What's wrong with you, Tony Schiavone? Are you off your meds? What's going on over there? Uh, actually, uh, I haven't taken my meds today, as a matter of fact. Well, this is going to so, be a fun show, let me just tell uh, you. Yeah, you're not kidding. I'm, I'm de-speeded well, right now. Well, I'm hoping that you're off your meds on July 9th. That's when you and I are going to make our way over to Dallas. It's three links right before Great Balls of Fire. What's going down and why do you need to be there? Well, every single week I get this tweet. I know that Tony does. When are you doing a super show? When are you doing a joint show? When can we get you and Bruce Pritchard to talk about your year in the WWF? Okay. We have an answer for you Sunday, July 9th in Dallas. Hook it up. Uh, we have got something special planned, something I haven't even told Tony about. Uh, it's maybe our craziest stunt we've ever done in a live show. We need some participation though. I need some witnesses. I need you to line up, be there, join us. It's Sunday, July 9th, and you can get your tickets at one place. And where can they get them, Tony? Get the tickets at whwlive.com. It's online, whwlive.com. It'll be Conrad Thompson, Bruce Pritchard, and Tony Schiavone on stage together talking about Tony Schiavone's year in the W. WE. Let me uh, let me ask you to clarify something, kind sir. Why did you say witnesses? What what uh Well, listen. Why, why would you use that term? When you have a stunt prepared to the level that we do, it does require some commitment on my end and I mm. am going all in. And I'm going to want people to be there to kind of, you know, bear witness to what we have planned and and then spread the word. Now, let me tell you exactly what we're doing. It's the 1989 year of the WWF. That's when Tony Schiavone was there. Uh, we might even go ahead and dip over into the Royal Rumble 1990. But specifically, sure. we're going to talk about the 89 SummerSlam, which is one of my favorites. As a kid, I have often talked about 89 being my absolute favorite year. And uh, Zeus and Hulk Hogan and all that craziness from SummerSlam 89. We got all that fun 
But at the same time, we're going to touch on some Monday night wars and Bruce Pritchard is never short on stories or bullshit himself. So this will be a great time. And one of the things we're doing different about this show is we're actually opening the doors two hours early. So our stage show is going to start two hours after the doors open. So doors open at one and then at three o'clock is when we'll actually get on stage and try to make you laugh. But for those first two hours, man, we're just going to fellowship. You get all the pictures you want, get all the autographs you want. We're going to drink some beer. We're going to hang out. We're going to have a good time just as a big group of wrestling fans, because by gosh, that's what we all are. And then, you know, two hours later, then we're going to say, okay, now let's make you laugh. And we're going to do our best. You're going to dig it. I'm telling you, it's going to be a huge card from the WWE. They've started to line this up. Now you've got Roman Reigns and Braun Strowman in an ambulance match, but something that a lot of people thought was a dream match for a long time. Samoa Joe and Brock Lesnar, that's all going down. And you know what? That sounds well and good, but for my money, the real main event is Tony Schiavone and Bruce Pritchard on the same stage. We're not taping it. Come join us. The only place to see this is to be there. Tickets are on sale now. They're one price, and uh, you're going to go ahead and be a VIP the whole way. Uh, check it out right now, whwlive.com. That's whwlive.com. Um, and let's talk about the horseman, man. I, I'm pretty fired up about this. We do need to give a quick shout-out to our good friends over at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway. Uh, Dick Bourne and David Chappell have maintained all these Crockett memories forever. Uh, and that's done at midatlanticgateway.com. And now Dick Bourne has stepped out and written the four horsemen book. Uh, we've been giving away copies of the book and we encouraged you last week on Facebook to share some of your favorite horseman memories. Uh, and so we've got a ton of those right now over on Facebook and we would encourage you to go share some of yours as well. It's facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. That's facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. On there, you'll see where we have four winners announced to pick up brand new copies of the all new Four Horsemen book from Dick Bourne. So you can kind of follow along with what we're doing here. You've got a cool little keepsake. And stay tuned. Dick has something special planned. We're going to do some more giveaways and prize packs in the future at facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. Uh, so there's your motivation to go free stuff. Uh, but we didn't talk much last week about the motivation of the four horsemen. And so from a, a kayfabe situation, uh, how important was it to their success, at least in your opinion, Tony, to protect the titles and remain champions? Because it felt like at different points in the horsemen's incarnations, they had all the belts. And we've talked a little bit about that last week, just the wide variety of belts that were in JCP. Um, but it almost felt at certain times that the horseman's goal was to help protect the world title. Uh, how did they, you know, reinforce that during their matches, their promos. And, and can you kind of uh, speak to what that was like? Well, when you think about the, the first part of the four horsemen, uh, when the first uh, four horsemen first started, we're talking about heading towards the gathering, heading towards uh, Starcade, uh, and we're talking about, and if you go back and look at those promos, and I, I once again encourage people to go back and just binge watch it. It's wonderful, and you can do that on the WWE Network by watching online, and that's what I've been doing. Uh, the Four Horsemen would always talk about their match, but they would talk more about protecting Ric Flair and preventing Dusty Rhodes from becoming the world champion. That was always part of the promos. I even remember watching Ole 
do a promo where he just talked about he and Arn in a tag team match, and he just glossed over it. But all of a sudden, he would get into the real meat of what is going on, and that was Ric Flair in the world title. Now, let me also say this. Uh, it also elevated the world title, which was very important. Back then, at the formation of the Four Horsemen, when wrestling was uh, was doing its was in its I'm not going to say its heyday, but when WCW was uh, beginning to to rise on a national scale, back then the world title meant something. There weren't a lot of title. And you you talked about a lot of titles uh, watering things down. National title, we talked about that, but still the world title needed to be elevated. So they had Ric Flair as the world champion, and they had the Four Horsemen as his protector. And that angle moved forward from then. So it, it made the world title mean something. Not only that, back through the history of wrestling, it's always important. It was always important for business to have the heel as the champion and the baby faces chasing him. That was kind of important. And that got to change once Hulk Hogan took the world title in the WWF. But it was always the business having the world champion be a heel. Harley Race was a world champion, of course. Dory Funk Jr., uh, Terry Funk, Jack Briscoe, I know, was uh, a baby face as well. But it, business was always, always better when the heel had the world heavyweight title. No doubt about it. Um, one of the things that was kind of a staple for the horsemen at the time was when they would do this horseman style beatdown. Uh, it felt like there were a lot of run-ins and that was kind of a staple. Had this been done to the level that it was here, it felt like the heels kind of ran in, um, as a group here more than any other time in history. Would you consider, you know, running in and, and the horseman style beat down, you know, one of the calling cards of the horsemen that kind of set them apart from everybody else, because it feels like they did it a lot more than anywhere else. It reinforced the fact that they were a quote unquote gang. If I can use that yeah. po- politically incorrect term, it reinforced that. And it also reinforced the fact that when one of the guys are in there wrestling, you always as a fan expected something to happen, which was always pretty good for business as well. And of course, Dusty was booking back then, and he was very famous for a lot of run-ins. We have seen countless run-ins in the business, Conrad. You know that. Uh, it's one of the staples of, of an angle. Uh, sometimes run-ins made no sense, but because they were the horsemen, it made sense. And uh, it took run-ins, uh, I'm not going to say to a new level, but it made run-ins legit to me. No, I totally agree. Uh, I also liked when you said uh, the word gang and said if you could use a word that wasn't politically correct. I'd like to remind people that within the last six weeks, we have actually told stories about guys having ladies of the evening uh, drop a deuce on a glass coffee table. And, and now we're, we're wondering, Hey, can I say the word gang on here? Yes. It's the, say. it's the society we live in, dude. So, so, <laughs> you know, you so know that. Co- coffee table dumps just fine. Nobody's right. going to be bothered. Right. Uh, right. but you know, if we're going to say something else, we need to step out and just be clear. Hey, I want to go ahead and tell you, Tony, I did something this week and I didn't even smarten you up, but uh, oh, I, oh I, my I, God. I want you to see what we got going here. Go to pro forward slash WHW. I know we've referenced some kind of silly, uh, you know, shirts that we've put out in more recent weeks. Specifically, we've got the coffin on roller skates. 
Uh, we've got maybe the most popular shirt that we sell now. Bill's Glass Bottom Boat Ride Tours, established in 1931. Uh, and then one of the favorites, at least in my household, Flare Hit It First. All hmm. of those are available now at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. But in honor of the Four Horsemen, we joked about it last week. One of my favorite shirts from the era was the old shirt with the iron-on letters that Ole Anderson would wear on TV that said, Damn, I am good. We have got that shirt now, available at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. This is what a wrestling shirt should be, man. Uh, You know what it is. All of your wrestling fans know what it is. Uh, But when you're down at the Walmart, nobody's going to make fun of you for being a wrestling fan because they don't know. They just know, Damn, I am good. And you can pick up a shirt at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And when you pick up a shirt, what happens, Tony? Tony Schiavone will call you. Let me say that Tony Schiavone will not call you immediately, but Tony Schiavone will call you. And I say that because I saw on Twitter uh, during the past week where uh, someone had tweeted, still waiting for my call from Tony Schiavone. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, did I miss someone? So I, I looked through the the, uh, the stack of papers. I looked online. He had uh, he had just placed his order. I mean, just it's like as soon as I place my order, my phone's going to ring. That's not going to happen, but it will ring. And this is kind of the our our live show we got coming up in Dallas is kind of an extension of this of these phone calls. I think because I love connecting with the fans. I love talking wrestling because as you Conrad said, we're all great wrestling fans, and this is a chance to do it on a larger scale when we're in Dallas. But I want to talk to you on the phone. I'll spend as much time with you on the phone as you'd like. So go to ProWrestlingTees.com. Uh, check out uh, all of our different designs. I have a question, though. I'm I'm looking at the designs right now, and they're all pretty cool. However, if you scroll down and you see the button on a fur coat design. Yes. yes. Okay, what the hell is that? Well, it's a fur it, coat. It, it, is that a monster? Is that a tarantula? What, uh, I'm trying to visualize. I see the button. I feel like I feel like right now the conversation you're having is one that at least three women in their life have had in their head whenever you would go ahead and remove your trousers. I think they would say, what the hell is that? Is that an animal? Is that a tarantula? I see the button. Uh, do I peel it back? What's going on? And, and I feel like... I mean, I know Medusa has never said that, and I know Deborah has never said that, uh, and I know Dark Journey has never said that. We heard about that last really? week. But Lois, the first time back in 1943, she probably thought, "What is that?" Uh, she, I know she she didn't say that. She didn't say it exactly like that. She said something to the effect effect of, "Get that shit away from me," is what she would say. Well. So. She, you apparently were not successful in that because you cranked out so many kids that, um, you had your wow. own bus this and is, this, is, this is a shit on Tony Schiavone day. No, what I, the hell's going on with you? Well, I wanted you to go ahead and share with everybody, you know, some well wishes. I know a member of your clan, uh, recently was in the hospital, uh, either. I mean, I saw pictures of the interior of a hospital, so I assume it was one of your many, many, many children, or you had perhaps had your balls surgically removed so Lois could carry them in that jar she's always talking about. <laughs> yes, yes, you son of a bitch. John Michael, one of the twins, uh, was uh, had to go in for hernia surgery, 
Uh, and being the great dad that I am, and I am a great dad, you son of a bitch, being the great dad I am, he's 29 years old, and I still show up at the hospital, and Lois shows up at the hospital as well to be with him. So take that, okay? And by the way, she didn't have the glass jar with my balls in it at the hospital, just to let you know. Curious, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. How did this thing get? How? What the fuck? How did this thing get that I'm not controlling my family? That Lois is the one that's controlling things. How did that get started? I got to tell you, you, man. Perpetrate that. Well, okay. I feel like I'm a horseman here today, and I'm trying to put the beat down on you, and I'm trying to, uh, you know, do what we do, and that's protect our world title. And and I, I have some advice for you, or for any of those old people who are victim of these horsemen beatdowns, what they really needed was simply safe. Wouldn't you agree, Tony? Yeah, I, I would agree. And the reason is, is because simply safe, get yourself a good night's sleep. Let me say this, Conrad, you know this as well as I do, and it's even more so now, but back in the day in WCW, I would be gone a lot. And I'm gone a lot now with baseball and football. And it's just having the peace of mind that your home is safe, that your family is safe, to me is one of the most important things that you can do. I can remember back when I was doing wrestling and they had the Rodney King riots going on all over the country. They had them in downtown Atlanta and we had to go to St. Petersburg to do wrestling. I remember how worried we all were about the safety of our family. And this was way before Simply Safe. This was way before the great technology that they have brought to home security. When you install your Simply Safe home security system, you're arming your home with powerful sensors that actually tell you if a door is open or if a window breaks. The Simply Safe, no long-term contracts, and that's the that's the big deal. That is the big deal. No long-term contracts. Around-the-clock monitoring is only $15 a month for Simply Safe. It's so easy to install. You don't have to pound through drywall to put cords in. You can install it within 30 minutes to an hour and, and that's a big deal as well don't spend another night second guessing your home safety get simply safe and get some rest like conrad is obviously needed here before we started this broadcast go to simplysafe.com slash listen that's very simple simply safe that's s-i-m-p-l-i safe.com slash listen and you get 10 percent off your order today simplysafe.com slash listen l-i-s-t-e-n for 10% off your order, simplysafe.com slash listen. And have peace of mind when you're out of town and your family's at home. Or when you and your family go out for a vacation. We used to go to Disney for three, two, three weeks at a time. And the house was there by itself. Hmm. I, I wish we had Simply Safe back then. Let me just tell you, I actually recently got Simply Safe, and that's how they became one of our sponsors. Uh, I accidentally set this alarm off. Everybody in your damn zip code is going to know about this. I don't know that you mentioned that, but it's 105 decibels. And I was like, I don't even know how loud that really is. Well, when I set it off, woo. Yeah. I mean, my mom in another County was like, son, what's going on over there? Uh, this team of dedicated professionals watching over you 24 seven is the reason that I picked simply safe. And let me just mention too. When you get in a security system like this, a lot of people may not realize this. If you notify your homeowner's insurance folks, they're actually going to give you a discount. So right. this is 15 bucks a month, but you may actually come out ahead just by giving your, whoever your insurance carrier is a heads up. That's what happened for me. Uh, it saved me more than what Simply Safe was costing. So 
I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't do this. Go ahead. Check it out. Simplysafe.com forward slash listen and simply safe. Isn't with a Y it's with an I S I M P L I S A F E.com forward slash listen. Um, normally, you know, we're on here saying, Hey, check these guys out. Let me just tell you simply safe is the deal. Hook it up. Right. Go check them out. Because your, your home is your most important investment. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. you know, yeah. you get a good deal doing it. And so it's rare that, you know, you get an opportunity to really improve something, but at the same time, it not cost you anything. In fact, it's going to help you on multiple fronts. And that's what simply safe did for us. It protects the Conradison, which as we know, is 400,000 square feet. See, that's, that's uh, rumor and innuendo. It's a, it's a modest home on a meager hill, but it yeah. is protected by simply safe and yours should be too. Let's talk about the Andersons again, as a tag team. Uh, you know, I, I know we touched on them again. Uh, last week we spent a lot of time. Uh, of course we know at this point in our story, uh, Ole has been kicked out. He has been replaced at this point, uh, once by Lex Luger, but now Luger's out. That's where we're picking up this week, but going all the way back to Ole and Gene Anderson, one of the staples of an Anderson match was where they would work a body part and it was usually the left arm and they would get their finish to their matches because of the punishment that they did to that singular body part. And Arn was kind of even famous for having opponents be slammed on their arm. He would hold it behind their back and then body slam them on it. Uh, and then Ole would even get submissions from an arm bar, uh, or, you know, score a pin after a knee on the shoulder from the top rope. So this was kind of a staple of the Anderson style. How important was that style, do you think, to the Anderson persona? Well, I think that style was important for many for many reasons. Could you hang on a second? Sure. Lois, shut them dogs up or I'm coming upstairs. Let me just step Sorry. out and say there's no chance that those dogs are going to be quiet because this is way too early for Lois to be out of bed. <laughs> yeah, I guess she hadn't sobered up yet. You're right. Uh, where were we here? Oh, the storyline. Conrad, I, I think about this a lot. I, I really do. And I know I'm an old school curmudgeon, but business was good back then. And why was business good back then? Because matches told a story. The horsemen being a gang, helping each other was a story. Now I know there's storylines in wrestling and I know throughout the years there were storylines in wrestling, but the story was told during the match. And that's what made the matches great. They were so good at creating a story within the match. The performers were Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson, Gene Anderson back then. Of course, Ric Flair and Tully and all the other members of the Horsemen. When you were able to tell a story, you captivated the or captured the fans and captivated their imagination. And that was tremendous. When you just said working on a body part, I'd kind of, kind of forgotten that. But I remember going to matches as a fan watching Ole and Gene work on an arm and I didn't need a flip flop and fly high spot off the top rope on about five or six people or a double or whatever they would do or whatever they do off the top. Now I didn't need those high spots to enjoy the matches. I got my enjoyment by watching them work on the arm and thinking, when are the baby faces going to retaliate? Are they be able, will they be able to come back from that arm? Will they be able to shake it out? And work within the pain. And what happened was when you worked on the arm and when you worked on a body part like the Andersons did and the baby faces started to come back from that, it made them seem bigger than life. 
I just think the storytelling during a freaking match is a lost art. And when I think about storytelling during a match, I think about the four horsemen and I think about really Ole and Gene prior to that. And the guys that were so good moving forward through the eighties into the nineties. Well, damn, I'm, I got, I've got some great points today. Don't I? No, you really do. Uh, let me just, I, I don't oh, know when bitch. we'll work it in here. Just set for the record here. Does anybody in the history of professional wrestling have a spine buster as good as Arn Anderson's? No, not at all. It was one of those moves that it was, it was a high spot without being a high spot. Yeah, it really was. And he was tremendous at it. And it was one of the reasons that, well, there are a number of reasons that Arn got over, but the spine buster is one of the, the, uh, the moves that you remember. It is actually the spine buster was the forerunner to naming he and Tully the brain busters in the WWF. Let's talk about the enhancement talent, because back in the day, you know, if you wanted to see some of your favorite names go against each other, some of the stars, so to speak, you had to actually go buy a ticket. Television was really reserved for getting guys over. And the way they did that is, is the old fashioned squash match. And you would have the star go out and he would put on an exhibition of some of his better offensive moves. Uh, and through there, we kind of fell in love with some of our favorite enhancement talent. There's a lot of people listening who are George South fans or, you know, fans of the Mulkey brothers or Rocky King, uh, really talented performers who could, could carry a match. I think most people regard George South as being one of the very finest, you know, in that regard. What was the, the, the importance of the enhancement talent? Do you remember, you know, any, any instances in particular that stand out? Uh, was mm-hmm. anybody ever particularly rough with these guys? Did anybody have a reputation for being, Hey, I want to work with that guy. What can you tell us about enhancement talent from this era? Uh, enhancement talent was great job guys, if you will. I mean, we've used the word jabroni. We've used the word job guys. Enhancement talent is a, I don't know why you're politically correct by using that term, but, uh, they were talented guys who, if they were good, like a George South, uh, if they were good, made your win as a star seem important. Bullet Bob Armstrong used to always say, and, and I used to always hear that. He said, if you, if you, Make the guy, if you make your job guy during a match, if you give him some moves, if you give him something to do, if you make him look strong, then when you beat him, you've beaten somebody and you look better. And the, I think the stars back then were very good at that. Uh, making a match seem like a match. Sure. There were, there were complete squash matches. Uh, look, when the, when the road warriors started, that's basically what they did. Uh, they completely just squashed people because that was their gimmick. Nikita Koloff was like that too. Big, strong, powerful, super heels. But the job guys made the guys look better. I want to go back. I don't know where this is, and I would like uh, a fan or two or a couple of fans to go through the WWE Network, probably 85, maybe 86, the early years of WCW Saturday Night, uh, and find for us the job guy match where the kid – uh, was not, did not do what Ole wanted. They brought these kids in. I, I'm not so sure if they were amateur wrestlers or what they were, but it was a beatdown going on. 
and the kid was not going to sell. They tagged in somebody, Ole's partner. I'm not so sure who Ole's partner was at that time, but the kid tagged in and the kid just jumped over the top rope and would not sell for Ole. And we all could see this developing that this kid wasn't going to sell for Ole. And it was, there was a pause in the match, almost as if time stood still. And Ole looked over towards us at the set and turned to the kid and headbutted him. Oh. He headbutted the kid. It was a shooting headbutt. And Ole, because of, of you know many blade jobs being done back then, his forehead exploded with blood. And he just completely beat the kid's ass. Arn Anderson was at the desk with us, and because of all the blood, uh, Turner didn't want to show that on that Saturday night, and they put the match in a little box and just focused on me and Arn Anderson at the desk. And I remember the shot of Arn Anderson looking. He said, this is real life. This is horrifying. And Ole did a promo after that and put a towel over his head because his face was covered with blood. And it was a damn good shooting interview. And I, I think it's one of those one of those matches. We did hundreds and thousands of those matches, as you know. But that one match stands out because Ole Anderson, all of a sudden, the match was real. And this young kid who wanted to step up and show himself against one of the horsemen, <laughs> I, I guess uh, good for him because it's, it's a great memory. But it just shows you what happens when the guy doesn't want to work. So that's the one, one that I remember. The kid really got his ass beat, and it started with a stiff headbutt. And there was blood everywhere. If you want Wonderful. to see that, cruise on over to uh, facebook.com forward slash Monday. I'm sure someone is going to link it there for us. Yeah, that's um, going to be good. There's also a really, really great George South Ric Flair match that is worth going out of your way to see. I'm sure lots of our George South fans listening will make sure that that's posted as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Ric Flair, though. Um, the horsemen have always kind of promoted themselves as, you know, work hard, play hard. And uh, that's before that was really a saying. I guess it was more, you know, party hard, but get the job done. Can you talk about the epitome of this? We've kind of joked in the past about these guys drinking you into oblivion. And someone actually linked a interview with Tully Blanchard doing a hmm. promo with Crockett where he said, Oh, and Tony Schiavone, did you hear? He just got locked out of his house. What's he up to? Oh, stop uh, this. Well, are we talking about the horseman? Are we talking about this young guy out of college, unfortunately hooking up with flair and Tully and the horseman and JJ and riding limousines and getting locked out of the house and puking in the bathtub. And all of a sudden thinking, what the hell have I got myself? Is that what you're trying to go to? No, That's I, it. I, I am really loving that this is the second time in less than an hour you have talked about yourself in third person. This is this is good stuff. Um, you keep count? <laughs> I, I am. I've been counting. So, you know, Rick, Rick Flair is is the epitome of this work hard, play hard. You know, this guy's drinking and partying to the point that poor announcers are getting locked out of their house, sleeping in their car, yeah. vomiting in the tub. I mean, it's it's next level. Yeah. Look, but then come he, on. But then he gets in the ring. And he turns it on in a way that very few could. Uh, it's almost like he had another gear. And yeah. how much of that was for show? Because there there are lots of stories out there about Ric Flair, you know, taking if he's having a drinking contest with somebody, he's really pouring his drinks in a plant 
let me just mention that doesn't happen yeah. in 2017. I know for a fact, those drinks are going to a good home. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how, you know, flair developed this persona where he was able to seamlessly go from talking smack, uh, and, and positioning himself as the well-dressed playboy, but now he's a workhorse and he doesn't lose any credibility in either. We were, uh, a lot of times on, uh, we always went to Atlanta on Saturday mornings to tape, uh, W, uh, tape our Saturday night show. And a lot of, a lot of times we would fly out early in the morning from, uh, from Charlotte to Atlanta to do a show and the guys would have to work on Friday night because Friday, Saturday, Sunday and a double shot on Sunday, <laughs> as Arn Anderson used to say, just throw another double shot in there for us. Uh, so they would work a double shot on Sunday. I specifically remember one time we all, uh, and I may have told this story before, uh, but we, we all were, uh, getting on the plane and Delta would always upgrade us to first class early morning flight from Saturday. Not many people were on it back then. So we always were upgraded and we were, a bunch of us were sitting in first class. The guys who worked Raleigh, North Carolina the night before, and here came Arn Anderson in. Uh, you know, walking death. Here came, uh, here came, uh, Tully in, uh, walking death, JJ, you know, all looking like they had maybe stayed up all night and they were all like not talking to anybody and just sit down. And all of a sudden here came flare in, he's snapping his fingers. He's doing his strut. He's walking. He claps his hand. He looks at the flight attendant. He says, ma'am. Bloody Mary's all around and a double for me. And I remember thinking, what the fuck is going on with this guy? How come everybody else is walking in like they just had an enema and he's walking in like he's just opening up a bar. I remember asking Lois about this and Lois says, well, he probably takes a lot of B12 shots. I <laughs> said B12 shots. Fuck. Mm. He's taking a lot of kamikaze shots is what he's taking. It was amazing. It was an, am- it was an amazing performer that he could do what he would do and then perform that night. And of course those guys now Friday night, we're talking Friday night in Raleigh driving from Raleigh to Charlotte. And if you've ever made that drive, that's not easy. That's about a two hour drive and, or maybe three hour drive from Raleigh to Charlotte to get up early or maybe not get up at all to stay up all night, go do a morning show, cut some of the greatest promos of your life and then go do a night show that night. And then, on Sunday, do an afternoon matinee and maybe do like Asheville, North Carolina, Sunday at noon or Sunday at one o'clock and Charlotte, North Carolina, eight o'clock on uh, Sunday night. It was amazing, amazing how these guys could lead this type of life. I could not do it, but I only went back then. I only went out to TV tapings. I was, uh, I was on the road, some, some big tours, but not every night like these guys did. And it was absolutely amazing what they could do and how they could live this lifestyle. The horsemen were a gang on TV, but in real life, they were just a bunch of fun loving guys who lived the lifestyle that Ric Flair always talked about. They really, really did with the exception of Ole, He was different, but Arn and Tully, JJ and Ric Flair. And many times me, unfortunately, were all part of that. Now, hey, so I was, I was the, I was like the fifth, I was like the fifth fat ass horseman. How about that? There's what, a T-shirt for you. What was JJ? Fifth you'd be fat like the, ass horseman. You'd be like the what? sixth horseman because JJ was there. 
Oh yeah, okay. I was like the sixth fat ass horseman. Well, I'll tell you what, um Rick Flair would say back then and even now, you know, sure, you know, you're gonna you're gonna skimp on the sleep. Sure, you've gotta still put in your workout regardless. Yes, you're probably gonna drink maybe a little too much. But mm. the key ingredient is to stay on the right kind of diet. And so we want to tell you a little bit about our friends over at Hello Fresh. Um, and what we're excited about here with Hello Fresh is because they're on a mission to save home cooking. Now, we've talked about this type of concept before, uh, but this is really fun because they're making cooking more fun because they're focusing on the whole experience and not just the final plate. What we mean is they like to think of themselves as a farm to box company because they want everybody to have access to fresh ingredients and this is going to bring you great meals but they don't stop there they're also kind of a couch to kitchen company because they're getting people off the couch and into the kitchen cooking together uh, and they feel unstoppable because they've got all the ingredients they need right there thanks to hello fresh um, most of all though they think that they're a fork to feel good company because even rick flair would know when you cook and eat delicious and healthy meals, you'll want to keep doing it again and again. Um, the number one priority here is to get you cooking, and HelloFresh makes it easy, don't they? They make it easy because, and, and I think you, you brought up a good point here. You brought up the fact that, first of all, it is farm to box, then it's couch to kitchen, then it's fork to feel good. You're looking at fresh ingredients and recipes that start at the farm and go all the way to making you feel good. Isn't that what it's about? Good meals. When we talk about getting together and having a good meal, we all feel good about it, right? Now you can do this at your house. So I, I think it's, it's wonderful. I think it's great. And it takes about 30 minutes to prepare all of this. And I even can tell you this, and this is what I really like because of all their different recipes and all their different balanced recipes. They have just introduced. You ready for this, Conrad? I'm ready a breakfast option is that cool or what dude that's a big deal i'm a big that fan is of a big deal yeah they because also breakfast, breakfast is my favorite meal man breakfast Absolutely is the most important meal. meal of the day and thank uh, you mom you're right yes hello fresh knows this and they're now offering customers uh, a couple of different varieties you can get a classic box a veggie box and a family box uh, you can actually order three four or five different prepared meals per week and they're designed to be either two or four people. So no matter what size your family is, you're good to go. And this is because they're putting together new recipes every single week. So you're not going to get in this routine of eating the same old thing. Uh, and their recipes are going to make you feel unstoppable. And your taste buds are going to thank you. Now, here's the best part for me and Tony. Uh, they have six easy-to-master steps. So you don't have to be a professional cook to knock this out of the park. They're going to get you chopping, zesting, and cooking like a natural uh, and best of all, they can do this quickly. You're talking 30 minutes or less, and you don't need a lot of fancy kitchen equipment. Anybody can do this. Uh, and these guys are constantly experimenting to make sure that you get the freshest, most natural ingredients, and you get those ingredients to shine with their recipes. So I don't know what you're looking for, but I'll tell you this. HelloFresh has it all, uh, and they've got this meal kit delivery service that's going to make cooking so much fun. Uh, that it becomes more than just the final play. It's a whole experience. Uh, now, we want to tell you now, you can go ahead and get a great deal. They're offering light summer meals. And as Tony just said, the breakfast option, all of this can be done for less than $10 a meal. 
Uh, wow. I've, I've actually got my first box of this this week. Uh, this is the first time I've gotten something like this where I was able to go ahead and cook it with my girlfriend. Uh, she was a little like, we have groceries at the front door. Yes, we do. And when we opened it up, <laughs> man, she was excited. Uh, she was able to kind of get it. It clicked with her. We had a great time doing it. My daughter loved it. Uh, and you're going to love it too. We're going to encourage you to get in on some of the fun and they're actually going to give you $30 off of your first week of HelloFresh. Really process that. $30 off. How often do you get an offer like this? Go to HelloFresh.com and enter this code. It's HAPPENED30. That's HAPPENED, like what happened when? HAPPENED30. H-A-P-P-E-N-E-D-3-0. Uh, and that can be yours right now at HelloFresh.com. Just use the code HAPPENED30. So let's pick up where we left off, man. Uh, if you caught last week's episode, when we last talked about the four horsemen, Lex Luger had just been kicked out. Let's go to the book, uh, on Christmas night in the Omni Luger had won the Atlanta bunkhouse stampede and was once again, jumped by Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. JJ Dillon was at ringside and then Ole Anderson hits the ring to a huge pop. This is Atlanta after all, um, and makes the save for Luger. Luger then demands a shot at Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson for the NWA world tag team titles on new year's night at the Omni and Ole Anderson agrees to be Luger's partner. Uh, now the two former horsemen unite for one goal of winning the titles. You know, we haven't really talked about this a whole lot on the show, but how important were holiday shows for Jim Crockett promotions? Well, the big holidays were Thanksgiving in Greensboro, uh, Christmas, uh, and in the Omni and before then it was at, uh, the Charlotte. Sometimes they ran double shots, believe it or not, uh, during like new year's afternoon and then new year's night and then new year's night at the Omni as well. Those were historically the biggest nights in the business. Thanksgiving to me was always the biggest night, right. the single biggest night because people had been eating their Thanksgiving dinner. A lot of them, a lot of people eat it early in the afternoon and they hang around the house and they get cabin fever and they want to go out and they do want to do something later. That's why movies do quite well during the holidays as well, because of cabin fever. Uh, to me, it brings me back to the day where families went out and did something instead of parking their fat ass in front of the TV and watching a football game. Uh, those were very, very big and they would have very special events. I can remember going to Greensboro and they would have a two ring battle royal and they would always bring in. Back in the day, bring in some big stars from out of town. Andre the Giant made a lot of personal appearances or made a lot of appearances for the Crockett's on Thanksgiving and during the holidays. Those shows were bigger than the regular house shows. You knew something big was going to happen back by going to those shows. And it was, it was big for business. It was a big draw. It uh, brought in a lot of money. And I dare say that back in the day that those house shows uh, helped – probably were the one reason that a lot of times you had a great bottom line and that happened all over, not just where, not just where I was, but that happened all over back when it was Crockett's and back when it was George championship wrestling, they would do much the same thing. Crockett's ran Charlotte on Christmas, Georgia championship wrestling ran Atlanta on Christmas. So Lex and Ole have several matches with Arn and Tully on following events after the Omni. Uh, well into 1988, but ultimately fail to win the tag team titles. Uh, what do you remember most about this tag team of Ole Anderson and Lex Luger? 
it doesn't appear that they were much of a team, but their circumstances kind of put them together. Uh, was there ever any consideration as far as, you know, to giving them a run with the titles? I got to say as a fan, it felt like, oh, well, Ole's just going to turn on him and they're going to jump him. Right. I think, uh, in reality, you look at it like this, that in the scheme of the horsemen, probably Luger was, uh, I don't know how to say this. Just let me, I'm going to say what comes to my head. The least effective worker. And Ole Anderson was really an old-school worker who could create a match within the match itself. In other words, he could call spots and he could make something happen just by freestyling in the ring. I think that was put together to give Luger a rub, to make Luger a more polished wrestler, to see how it was done by one of the masters. So I think backstage, that was one of the reasons that happened. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. It's kind so, of bring him along and, and, a little bit. Right, right. So, uh, because anyway, as we know, Luger, and it, you know, I mean, you could look. You can either work or you can't. I always thought, but you could also you could develop into a pretty decent worker. And the only way you could develop into a decent worker is by working with great workers. And that's why Ole and Luger were a, a team. Um, Luger had a long way to go. It's not necessarily his fault. He looked good, and he was put into a position that we've talked about before as being one of the top guys without really being able to work and without really being able to do a good promo. He was an anomaly in the business. So January of 1988, uh, Barry Windham is first officially offered the spot as the fourth horseman on world championship wrestling on January 23rd. This is in a melee, uh, following a Western States heritage title defense, but he emphatically turns it down. And after the match, Luger apologizes to Wyndham for the events of a year ago when he joined the horsemen and the two shake hands and agree to be partners for a big match against Flair and Blanchard in February in Charlotte. Uh, during Ric Flair night in Raleigh's Dorton Arena four days later on January 26th, Sting would ask Ric Flair to get in the ring and agree to an NWA world title match. J.J. Dillon comes down to the ring instead, still holding a glass of champagne from the ongoing celebration taking place. And he winds up throwing it in Sting's face, and Sting explodes on JJ and puts him in the Scorpion Deathlock. Of course, Flair and the Horsemen hit the ring to save JJ, and Flair is so outraged that he agrees to the title match. Uh, in your opinion, Tony, was Sting at this point seen as higher on the depth chart than Barry Windham? It seems as if him being positioned to feud for the world title here um, really makes it feel like he is a star on the rise. Uh, has there been any? thought at least in your mind at this point to breaking the horseman up or did you guys kind of think hey it works so well let's just keep it going yeah there was no thought of, of breaking the horseman up here conrad at this time uh, the horseman worked and the the horseman worked where they could venture off into their own singles matches and still be the horseman because of protecting the world title back then. So I don't think there was any, well, I know there was no talk about breaking up the horseman because the horseman was kind of the NWO of its, of its day, uh, done right. So there was no, uh, thought about that. I, uh, and as far as sting being a bigger star than Barry Windham, no sting was not a bigger star than Barry Windham at that time, but you had to come up with guys to feed to flair, to feed to the world title, to make the world title mean something. You can be the world heavyweight champion and you can come out with a belt every week, but unless you're paired with some pretty good baby faces or maybe at times heels, it's not going to mean much. We would go, uh, we would have guys come to WCW's 
uh, taping just to talk about Ric Flair. Michael Hayes would make an appearance, and Hayes would be talking about facing Ric Flair. Uh, and this was before before Michael and the Freebirds uh, started working for us on a full-time basis, if I recall back then. So it was very important. Sting was on the rise, of course, uh, in 88, uh, the famous Clash of the Champions against the Nature Boy Ric Flair uh, in that, that match. But no, we're, you're not going to break up the horsemen just by making them a singles match. Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson would regain the NWA World Tag Team Championships from Barry Windham and Lex Luger on April 20th in Jacksonville, Florida. And this match is part of the World Championship Wrestling TV taping that aired on April 23rd. Here we would see Windham turn on Luger, causing them to lose the titles and accept J.J. Dillon's offer to join the four horsemen. He even rips the mask from the Midnight Rider in a dressing room brawl that follows the match. Uh, but we're unable to see his identity. Uh, as Barry and the rest of the horsemen ride off uh, into the limousine after the match, a window rolls down, and Barry's hand extends through the open window with the mask of the Midnight Rider in one hand and holding up four fingers, the sign of the four horsemen. It's probably one of the more classic images in horseman history. Tony, what did you think of this angle? How effective did you think it was? I, I, it was absolutely awesome. And I agree with you. One of the more, if I can use the word, enduring images uh, with Barry with the four fingers and the mask of the Midnight Rider. A lot of people, I I guess a lot of the dirt sheet writers and a lot of the uh, smart fans back then always said that when Dusty brought out the Midnight Rider, that was like they're at the end of his ideas. But I thought this one worked because, look. We were just talking about Luger's member of the Four Horsemen, and now we're talking about Barry Windham as member of the Four Horsemen. There is no comparison about who can work better and who can talk better. Barry Windham will go down to me as one of the great workers of all time. Uh, his shit looked good. Uh, he had a pretty good rap, and it, this was the right move, and it was a great angle to make him one of the elites in WCW or the NWA back then. I got to tell you, I loved the Midnight Rider gimmick. Uh, what, did? what did you think of the gimmick? I loved it too. I I I know a lot of people shit on it, uh, but I loved it too, with, with the exception of the one time. Uh, and this is, I, I don't think this is going to be on WCW Saturday night. This may have been on a uh, uh, one of our syndicated shows. We were in Roanoke, Virginia, and the Midnight Rider was going to ride in on a horse, and they put these uh, rubber. Uh, soles on the horse's shoes so he wouldn't destroy the concrete at Roanoke Civic Center, and it was on an incline. And we took the shot of the Midnight Rider on the horse trying to get to the ring. Horse couldn't make it up the up the slope <laughs> with, with Dusty's fat ass on the back. Couldn't make it up. The, couldn't make it up the slope, and, and he kept spinning his wheels and spinning his wheels. And we were trying to sell this. Here he comes, the Midnight Rider. I'd like for someone to find that if they would and, and uh, put it on our Facebook page because to me that was one of the funnier moments. But I like the Midnight Rider stuff. I Going back, I like the fact that the Midnight Rider had won the world title but would not reveal himself and had to give the title back. That You, you could say, well, that's a screw job finish. That was a pretty good storyline, I thought. I mean, it was apparent that the Midnight Rider was Dusty Rhodes just as Charlie Brown from out of town <laughs> What's Jimmy, the boogie boogie man valued? I, I like those things that were pretty so obvious, but the fans bought into it. 
I loved it. How good of a horseman was Barry Windham? Uh, do you think that they should have kept him face, or do you like the decision to make him uh, part of this heel faction? I, I like the decision to make him a heel. I uh, Listen, uh, Barry Windham's father, uh, Blackjack Mulligan, was one of the reasons, maybe the reason, that I fell in love with pro wrestling back in the 70s. Uh, and to me, Barry Windham personally was an extension of that. And it brought me back to my childhood. They even had Barry wear the glove and use the, use the claw. Uh, and we've talked about the claw before, but that was a throwback to his father. Uh, Barry was a sensational worker. Barry fit in to me. And not only that, you know, Barry lived, lived that lifestyle away from the ring. You know, I unfortunately got hung out with Barry Wyndham many times. Uh, and, uh, so he, he fit in, you know, Ole didn't leave that lifestyle. Uh, Luger led it to a certain extent, but Luger was always kind of off by himself. A lot of times you would go to the bar and you would see the horsemen hanging out together. And then there was Luger be somewhere else. I remember, uh, I can't remember where this was. This may have been in Jacksonville and I, I, Luger was at the end of the bar and flair and Arn and the entourage and Tully were over by themselves. And I was curious to see why Luger was at the end of the bar. Uh, so I walked over and Lex and I always had a very good relationship and there was a, uh, a bartender there peeling shrimp for Lex Luger, peeling shrimp. So Lex Luger had stand at the bar and eat it. And I said, this guy is peeling shrimp for you. He said, yeah. He said, it's a, it's a hell of a deal. He said, I don't have to get my fingers dirty or all stinky and I'm paying him extra money to peel the shrimp for me. Oh my God. Isn't that something? And that guy made an ass of himself by standing there and peeling shrimp and putting it on the plate so Luger could eat it. So I don't know where that story came from, but I, all of a sudden that's a vivid memory of that. But it goes back to the fact that uh, Wyndham fit in more with the lifestyle of Flair uh, and Arn and Tully back then. Is Barry one of the most underrated workers of all time, in your opinion? Yes, he is. He's one of the great workers of all time. In my opinion, Wyndham showed up at the Jim Crockett senior Memorial cup in Greensboro, North Carolina, walking the aisle with Ric Flair only hours after his turn had aired on national television. And the fans were shocked. Many of them had not yet seen the turn on TV. And there were gasps when Barry smiled and slowly held up the four fingers with Flair. Uh, So sting would take Wyndham's place as Luger's tag team partner in the tournament. And those two would go on to win the cup defeating the world tag team champions, Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson in the finals. We would also see flair successfully defend his world title against Nikita Koloff and JJ Dillon would lose to the midnight rider in a bull rope match. Uh, what's the logic in the timeline of these events? This is seemingly done for shock value here. And, and I guess you could say, you know, if you're trying to armchair quarterback that it was booked, but you know, kind of rushed, but in, in, the other hand, you've got Sting and Luger uh, going over here and making a big splash as as friends and and tag team partners here. Yeah. At this point, um, what did you think of the booking here with the kind of musical chair seating of the Four Horsemen? A lot of times, things were done based on how business was. If business was soft or business was down. They would do things like this. Uh, the old term was hot shotting right. back then. Uh, and so this was probably a time where 
looking and, and you know, Dusty and, and Jimmy Crockett, uh, and David, you know, they all looked at, uh, at the books. They all looked at the, uh, at the gates and thinking that things were soft, it was time to do something of shock value. And that's why this happened at that time. Uh, let's talk about, um, Luger at this point, in your opinion, had Luger already started to kind of alienate himself from some folks. And because we've, we've heard like Luger could be like a polarizing character and you just told us the shrimp story, but as far as amongst the boys, had anybody soured on him as being a top guy or was there still thinking that this is going to be a major player for us? I ask because we've often heard as fans that Sting and Luger were kind of the pet projects of Ric Flair. Is Rick doing this along with every, does Rick see what everybody else sees or is Rick kind of walking around defending the idea saying, no, you're wrong. You don't see what I see. I think Rick was always looking for guys to feed to him. Right. Uh, and, uh, that was a part of that. If anybody soured on Luger back then, uh, and would be vocal about it, it was Tully. Tully was always very vocal about things. Uh, and, uh, I, I Luger to me was going to be a great baby face, whether he could really work the part and be the top baby face was still, uh, debatable. I don't know if I always thought that Lex was misunderstood in the backstage area because I got along with him. We had nice talks and he was very pleasant to me. Uh, maybe. And of course I, I was different because I was an announcer and everybody was nice to me because they wanted me to put him over. I've talked about that story before, but it seemed to me that Luger was always off in another world. In other words, he was always thinking about something and was aloof, if I can use that term. Yeah. He he was but he wasn't a bad guy and he wasn't a prick, but he was just in his own world a lot of times. And uh that kind of set him apart from a lot of people. Luger, you know, Luger was the guy who was on the forefront of getting guys uh insurance. And uh he he tried to I think change the old school mentality of wrestling. It rubbed people the wrong way, some people the wrong way, but in effect, it helped some of the guys as well. Just just uh, in his own world, he really was. Because every time I would talk to him, he was very engaging. Um, and I, I think there may have been, and I thought this back then, I think there may have been a little bit of jealousy because he looked so good. He looked better than anybody. Absolutely. Take a, I mean, they all looked good. They all kept in shape, but no one looked like Luger. Luger. Around this time, uh, we would see, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I was thinking of the time that we were doing a local promo in the back and Luger, this is the first time I'd seen Luger. Luger came in with a jacket and a white shirt on. I remember it vividly. And, uh, Flair said in the backstage area, this was off camera. He said, Take off that coat, take off that shirt, and blow everybody away with the way you really look. That was a way of telling Luger, you know, you're here to do promos. You look great. Don't come here with a shirt and a jacket on to cover up what you got. So that was a vivid story I remember, and that was Flair trying to help a guy with his quote-unquote gimmick. Yeah. And trying to help a guy get over. I mean, he was a body guy, and if that's what makes you special, you know, don't cover it up. Um, 
so Barry at this time changes his finisher to the claw hold, which you just referenced as being his father's finisher. And he wins the U S title from Nikita. Uh, so Nikita, who was main eventing against Ric Flair for the world title is now even dropping the U S title. So it feels like Nikita's kind of sliding down the card a little bit as Barry starting to work himself higher on the card. We've talked about the stupidity of the claw before, yeah. uh, but I, I, I want to just mention, you know, flair has the figure four Tully has the slingshot suplex. Arn Anderson has the spine buster and Barry Windham has the claw. Which of those finishers would be your favorite? It would always be the figure four. Really? See, I'm going the yes. other way. I would say the spine buster. I think, I mean, the other ones just are kind of corn. No, nothing compares to the ridiculousness of the claw, but as finishers, none of these seem that devastating except the spine buster. And I just think it was always presented in a way that I could get behind. Right. That's because the announcers did a great job. No, absolutely. They did. Uh, uh, look, the spine buster was a great move. Uh, the slingshot suplex was awesome, but to me, flair going for the figure four always got the biggest pop. And it was one of those things where, can he get to the ropes? Can he not? Is he going to turn it? He's not going to turn it. It was the drama of that to me that made that the best move. Uh, and when he would go for it, fans would react to him knowing that this could be it. And it also helped sell the baby face as a tough guy if he could get out of it. So that's why I liked it. I thought it was a, a great part of a storyline of a match. And, of course, Rick would set it up back in the day by working on the leg, and you saw it coming. Again, I'm, I'm big into match storylines, and that's why I like the figure four. On um, the Great American Bash, 1988, the price for freedom, uh, this hmm. took place Baltimore, uh, July 10th. We have covered it in long form in our archives, please check that out. Uh, but here in the main event, we see Ric Flair successfully defend his world title against Lex Luger when the match was stopped by the athletic commission for blood. Uh, I know we've talked about this before in the archives, but in, in a line or two, tell everybody what you thought of that finish. Sucked. There you go. Um, well, let's talk about this version of the four horsemen. There's been lots of debate online and it's probably one of the things that people have talked about the most on social media, since we started talking about the horsemen, about the different incarnations, uh, compare, you know, so far what we've had are Ole Anderson and Lex Luger and Barry Windham as the fourth member of the horsemen, uh, who of those three, uh, made the team the best in your opinion. Well, because I'm old school, my favorite will always be Ole Anderson. He's on the cover of Dick Bourne's book. Uh, and to me, Ole was real. And that's my sentimental favorite. But Barry Windham was such a great worker that to me, he stands out as the best. Do you know? Is that, is that a a politically correct answer? I no, mean, I think it's very fair and it makes total yeah. sense. I think most people listening would agree, but. I guess I'm asking because it feels like, you know, Ole was kind of the found one of the foundation members uh, because of his tag team with Arn. Uh, right. But Barry is is in, and you got to wonder, hey, is this going to be more like Ole or more like Luger? Because Luger was in long enough to turn babyface, and then he's out of there. Uh, but Barry, do you think that was going to be the long term plan, or you know, what was the feeling on Barry as a horseman at the time? 
Well, the feeling was it was going to be a long-term plan to okay. be a horse. Look, his – and I know uh, through, the, through the ages in wrestling, they always pulled from the past maybe too much. But this was a throwback to his dad, again, who was a super heel when Blackjack Mulligan was wrestling. And Barry was the modern incarnation of it. Barry wrestled, if we all remember, way back when as Blackjack Mulligan Jr. when he first started. So uh, the, he, I, he was going to be a member of the Horsemen for a long time because he was going to be one of those super, to me, super heels. Also at that same bash, we would see Barry Windham defeat Dusty Rhodes to retain the U.S. title when Rhodes' friend Ron Garvin would turn on him and knock him out, allowing Barry to win the match. Uh, and during the month of July, the Horsemen would compete in lots of War Games events as a part of their 1988 Great American Bash Tour uh, there are 11 of those in total, and the opponents would be a very group of the Road Warriors, Nikita, Sting, Luger, Paul Ellering, Dusty Rhodes, and Steve Williams. I know we've kind of talked about the war games before in the past and that mm-hmm. the matches uh, weren't necessarily your favorite, but right. when they're doing this many of them, it feels like it kind of takes away from making the matches special. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, no, uh, I, I think back then you, you, in the old, um, mentality of, of territories, you had to have your biggest event going to your biggest places. Right now. I, uh, I, I know that, uh, with pay-per-views and with a lot of TV and now with TV being very more important, more important than ever, it may have seemed like we watered it down, but in the old school mentality, you had to do that. When Ric Flair had a program with Sting, it would be booked in all the big-time house shows. Uh, Charlotte, Greensboro, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, uh, out in Long Island, uh, down in Florida. Uh, So, no, I I don't think it, it, it watered it down at all. I think it was an important part of the business back then. Now, there's videos uh, on YouTube uh, that you can actually find. And I don't know that you ever saw this cause you've kind of been not paying attention to wrestling for so long, but, uh, somebody was filming backstage and it was released, uh, I guess maybe in the last 10 years or so where you see hmm. lots of the boys, uh, during this great American bash tour partying. Um, and it feels as if maybe they're partaking, uh, in some, some substances as well. Hmm. Have you seen this backstage footage? I'm not. Yeah. Is I'm, it legit? Is it a, is it a work or is it a shoot? No, it's a hundred percent legit. One of the boys, I really? guess had gotten a, a video camera and was just filming the boys kind of hanging out and being themselves. Oh. And, and they're not for the most part doing anything, but you got to wonder, I mean, obviously this was never intended for public consumption. I'll send you a link. I'm sure lots of people yeah. watching. Will I want to well. see that because this is certainly pre, uh, uh, smartphone era. Oh, for Where everything sure. is videotaped now. Somebody's so. walking around with a giant camera back there, and it feels like somebody would have smartened him up. But I guess at the time, they thought, well, he's one of the boys. I uh, don't think anything uh-huh. of it. Um, uh-huh. Let's mention. You know, Bear, l- let me say this, and l- I want you to get to your next point, but I want you to keep this in the back of your head as we go along here. Uh, Barry was one of the great drinkers of all time. You do know that, don't you? Uh, Rick has told me about his Porsche that he drove 110 miles an hour everywhere and that yeah. he could put them away as fast as anybody. Yeah. He was, he was maybe one of the best. Uh, yeah, everybody, everybody has their own tolerance on liquor. 
but Barry's was pretty high and Flair's was pretty high too. But I think as, as later on in the night we got, when the uh, watermelon shooters came around, Barry actually drank his while Flair was dumping his in the plant. So, but, but Barry was really good at it. If that is a good <laughs> virtue to have, well, I'm very good at getting drunk. I are very good at getting other people drunk, but he was, he was, uh, he was one of the best. In late July at a TV taping, uh, at the great American bash event in Columbus, Georgia, Cornette and the midnight express confront JJ Dillon, Arn and Tully, uh, and demand a shot at the world tag team titles. Now this is kind of out of character at the time because both teams were heels, uh, but the midnights wind up being cheered here. Uh, how did you feel about this feud of having, you know, two heel teams uh, what did you think about the pairing and what this might, how this might actually work out, the Midnight Express and Arn and Tully? I never, uh, I never was in favor of this, and, and I guess it's the old school in me. But, but again, what we're looking at is trying to come up with combinations because business is soft. Right. So I didn't have a problem with that. You had guys who could work. You had guys who could talk. And regardless of it being heel or babyface, if you pair them against each other, uh, two things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to have great promos to get you in the building. And number two, you're going to walk away with uh, feeling pretty good because you saw a good match with the guys who could work. So I didn't have a problem with that in the structure of what's heel and what's babyface. I had a problem with it, but I understand what was going on, understood what was going on. Well, Here's what we've been waiting on. September of 1988, the Midnight Express, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane here with their manager, Jim Cornette, would defeat Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson for the NWA World Titles in Philadelphia. Uh, and this happens on September 10th. Uh, Anderson and Blanchard are immediately out of there and on their way to the World Wrestling Federation where they became the Brain Busters managed by Bobby Heenan. Of course, we know Arn would eventually return in just over a year but Tully would never regularly wrestle again for Jim Crockett promotions or WCW and would never again be a member of the four horsemen. Although it looked like he might return on several occasions, including when they put Paul Roma in. we'll cover that another day, but let's talk yeah. about this because this is something that a lot of people, um, kind of view as like the end of the horsemen. And when you see Arn and Tully leave, it's not quite the same for horsemen. Now this won't be the end of our episode. We're going to keep it rolling. But at the time when you get word that Arn and Tully are on their way out, it feels a little bit like the end of an era. Does it not? feels like the end of the era. And it feels like the, uh, the beginning of the end of Jim Crockett promotions to me. Uh, it feels like that we have the two, two of the cornerstones of what has become uh, one of our standards in, uh, in the NWA and Jim Crockett promotions leaving to me, this kind of felt like back then, uh, what it felt like in 1995 when all of a sudden Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan showed up in WCW, their stars started to migrate to us. Now we got two of our bigger stars going to them. This was pre NWO days and th- you know, you were talking about September of 88, right? Mm-hmm. All right. September of 88. It wasn't long after that before, and this is in the midst of the negotiations, I'm sure, before Jim Crockett Promotions hurting financially was bought out by Turner Broadcasting. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about that because, 
Tully has gone on record as saying the situation is he and Arn felt like they were underpaid and Flair would agree. And they felt like, um, specifically at the great American bash, they got a thousand dollars Arn and Tully did each for their payoff from the great American bash. And JJ Dillon got $3,000 and they felt like the office was not appreciating what they were doing. And everybody they're working with was making more money. And that is infuriating to them. Um, so they want more money. They're not happy. And in the middle of all this, the Turner people are starting to flirt with the idea of buying the company. So they have some consultants come in and they want to interview all the major players. And Tully Blanchard qualifies as one of those. So the Crockett's say, hey, be as honest as you can with these consultants. I guess the idea being, hey, we're not trying to work this thing. Just tell the truth. Well, Tully apparently cuts a promo and a half about his unhappiness and his spot on the roster in regards to where he's being compensated. And even though they said, we want you to be honest, the very next time they're set to fly... Uh, Tully is off the jet and he had been on Crockett's jet and now he's lost his spot. And that is infuriating to Tully. And he supposedly says, JJ, when do you want the belts here or here? And JJ picks Philadelphia when they get to the building that day, cause they traveled separately. Arn tells Tully he's putting in his notice that day. So they both came to the same conclusion independently of one another And they're both out of there and on their way to the World Wrestling Federation. Flair, being such uh, a loyalist to his friends, starts to flirt pretty heavy with the idea of going to the WWF. And it's actually even discussed that he may show up in late August at SummerSlam 88. And ultimately, we know that didn't happen. So instead of Flair showing up on the Brother Love Show, it was Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, no offense to Hacksaw, but probably quite a letdown when a lot of people considered the opportunity of Flair coming over as being a game changer uh, for both Flair and the WWF. That didn't happen. Uh, look, can I interrupt you here? Please do. Uh, and, I, and I understand by, with Jim Duggan uh, not being Ric Flair, but in reality, with the exception of the dirt sheet readers and the smart fans, how many of the fans knew that it was going to be Flair's spot there? At Brother Love. No, well, not a lot, but that's what I'm okay, saying. Okay, that's the, right. It, it, right. It's, it's a situation where in hindsight, people think, wow, what a debut that would have been. How would the business have been different? Obviously, Jim Duggan had a phenomenal WWF ruin, but how would the wrestling landscape have been different had Flair jumped right. And, right. And, and, and went over there instead? So this is all happening you know, in, in August and September. Uh, what was the the... When do you find out that Tully's out? Um, what's the feeling like in the locker room? Uh, what are people talking about when, when two of the biggest stars, the people who were kind of the guy behind the guy with Arn and Tully are on their way out? Well, Tully was always the most vocal of any of the guys. Always spoke his mind. <clears throat> Maybe at times he held, he held back by, in other words, if he didn't like what Dusty was doing, he never, I don't know how many times he went to Dusty himself and said he didn't like it, but he would talk to other people about it. I remember very vividly 
after the Great American Bash, I'm sorry, after the Bunkhouse Stampede at the Nassau Coliseum, where Dusty went over in the Bunkhouse Stampede, we were back in the limousine and Tully was pissed off big time. And I was wondering what was going on. And I said, what's the deal here? And he said, I just think Dusty Rhodes should work against Dusty Rhodes so Dusty Rhodes can always go over. Uh, that was, he was upset with the booking. He was always critical of the booking. Uh, he was always very, very vocal shit disturber. I guess maybe you could call him that. I'm not sure. I didn't find out these guys were leaving until they left and I knew they were unhappy, but they never spoke to me about going somewhere else. Is is there a meeting in Philadelphia where they say, Hey, Tony, we're out of here. See you down the road or just, they're not there one day. They're just not there one day. Wow. Yeah. I, I think they, uh, they wanted to keep it quiet and I worked in the office and they just disappeared. And thus to me, the four horsemen were never the same again. Um, do you this know- was back at the time that flair and he did this uh, for a number of years in the backstage area would say people at New York city, people are trying to have been trying to get out of there for years. I've been trying to get in. And that was the promo nudged events that he, that he would like to come to the WWF back then. He made that local promo many, many times with me holding the mic. Not so sure he did it on uh, TBS, but he did it in a lot of, a lot of the local markets. Do you think the horsemen were ever the same after Arn and Tully no, left? Absolutely not. Uh, and of course I'm a, I'm an old school guy, but that's the, look, we, we brought this up last week. Think about the horsemen. You think about flair, obviously, and you can think about all the guys, but who, what the, what guy cut the best horseman interview Arn Anderson. And it was, it was Arn Anderson. He came up with the whole thing. We played the interview on this episode last week where he first started talking about the four horsemen. They picked up on that. The promotion picked up on that and Arn Anderson set the table for it. So if Arn is gone to me and Tully is gone, who one of, is one of the great workers ever. It's all over with. And you can throw people in there as much as you want to, but it's over. I guess what I'm asking is how can the WWF see this and Jim Crockett can't, um, because they're not paying them the way they ought to be paid. Do you know, uh, do you remember them talking about their unhappiness with their pay? Was this okay? Let's talk about that. Yeah. The unhappiness with the pay was a couple of things. Uh, I, I, I guess in reality, they, they were unhappy that dusty and, and flair were making all the money. Uh, and number two, Crockett's couldn't afford to pay guys back then what they were, were what they were paying them back two years prior. They just could not. Uh, so they had to cut somewhere. And in reality, it's probably wrong that they cut. I mean, you're telling me, and I didn't know this story. You're telling me that Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard got $1,000. This is for one show or for what? The entire Great American Bash? For, for the Great the American Bash pay-per-view in 1988, they were compensated $1,000. That's that's beyond comprehension. And and what, what infuriated them is that J.J. Dillon, 
who was just the manager. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but he was the manager got $3,000. And so from Arden and Tully's standpoint, we're the ones out here working our ass off, you know, putting on wrestling clinics and we got a thousand. And because JJ has more stroke in the office or has curried favor with the powers that be, so to speak, he gets more than we do combined. Right. They just thought that, that was bullshit. And I can understand their thinking on this, but I want to give another school of thought there. I maybe curry favor with the powers that be is one way to look at it. And JJ, obviously who has wrestled and had taken bumps, did not do it on a regular basis, but JJ was very instrumental in all these events in making things work smoothly. And thus JJ should have been paid for that. Should he have been paid more than Arn and, and Tully? No. Uh, the, they should have been paid equally a little bit more, but I don't think you can ever, to me, rip on how much J.J. was getting paid because J.J. did so much. Uh, something we talked about before in the past. Um, so I'm not so sure that, to me, how do they find this out? Does J.J. tell them? Do they go to the Crockett office and demand to see all the payouts? You know, I'm not exactly sure. I, I assume it's just, you know, the boys talk and yeah, that's gotta be it. The old, t- you know, telephone, telegram, telewrestler routine. Right. And so maybe the math isn't, isn't even accurate. You know, maybe they just kind of were looking for a reason to be upset, but clearly they felt like they were underpaid based on their contributions. Right. But you know, a lot of that is because of the, you know, disparity that they had with some guaranteed contracts that Crockett had already obligated themselves to with the road warriors, the midnight express and others. They're just, you eventually get to the end of the pie and there's just not enough left to go around. So you start giving off slivers in order to make sure right. everybody gets their piece. Exactly. Um, and so if you were first to the table, you got a bigger piece than if you were last at the table. And it feels like this is kind of musical chairs with contracts. And at the end, when the music's done, Arn and Tully find themselves without a chair and they're on their way to New York. what do you think of them as the brain busters? I know you got to, uh, keep up with your friends on TV here. what do you think of the brain busters? I loved them because I loved Heenan as a manager. Uh, and I knew they could work. Uh, but there was something very odd about it, but just because of where they had been and what they had done to me, they were always horsemen. And giving them a different gimmick, although it was still uh, Tully and Arn, and although it was still Heenan, it was one of the great talkers, one of the great heel managers. There was something odd about it because, to me, they should have always been the horsemen. It's it's weird to me that I can't think of a single Tully Blanchard WWF promo. Yeah. Now, I know they exist, but I'm just saying, when I think of Tully Blanchard promos... I could go through a laundry list of those that happened in Crockett. But then when you talk about them in the WWF, I'm like, well, I remember their look. I remember the jackets. I remember their managers. I remember Bobby talking. Can't tell you a single Tully Blanchard promo. Yeah. And that's because you remember Bobby talking and that was, he was the whole mouthpiece for the brain busters back then. So you're, you're, uh, you're talking about Tully Blanchard who gave one of the, one of the better serious, interviews, believable interviews in wrestling back then. I don't think there was any denying that. I mean, he had baby doll side, but she never talked. Right. Tully had one of the great, uh, heel, uh, legit interviews. And they took that away from him. 
So I see, and, and that's again one of the reasons that it seemed awkward to me to see them in the WWF. Let's talk about uh, October 1988 because here we see on October 22nd on World Championship Wrestling, Ric Flair is doing an interview where he asks fans to picture the Road Warriors sitting across the table from James J. Dillon in a contract. And this gets all kinds of fans excited and speculating that maybe the Road Warriors are going to replace Arn and Tully as part of the Horsemen. Um, although it's probably more likely that Flair was just referencing them, uh, to be in upcoming matches where he and Barry might team with them. Now this comes the speculation, at least because the road warriors had just turned heel on sting. Uh, do you remember there being any sort of serious consideration as to whether or not the road warriors would be a good fit inside the horseman? There was discussion about everybody being a good fit with inside the horseman and trying to keep the horseman alive. And anybody who was a big time star back then was under consideration for being a horseman because the fact was the horseman name, even today, the four horsemen name meant a lot and they wanted to keep that alive. And I remember uh, just uh, there being a lot of. And not on, not really, I wasn't involved in any brain, any meetings where we brainstormed on all this, but it was very apparent that they were trying to keep it alive from what the talk was in the backstage area. So November is when we see Flair team with Road Warrior Animal and they take on Lex Luger and Sting at a Washington DC house show. And here we would see JJ Dillon, the company Flair and Animal to the ring uh, but Paul Ellering is not with them. And a lot of people start to think, hey, this is a tease that the Road Warriors are going to become uh, part of the Horsemen. Uh, but when you, fa- of course, that doesn't happen. And when you fast forward into January, we see Butch Reed debut on the January 21st, Saturday morning edition of Championship Wrestling on WTBS. And here he's managed by J.J. Dillon. And now everybody starts whispering, Hey, maybe Butch Reed is going to become a part of the horseman. Fans are desperate to see somebody in these missing roles here. Uh, and at this point, I guess Reed was considered by some to be, uh, an associate of the horseman just based on his ties to JJ Dillon. Uh, but that official designation was never given to him very clearly the way it had been a year prior with Lex Luger. Um, I know Butch was super over in Florida. Uh, it does feel a little weird to think about the idea that Butch Reed may have been considered to be a horseman. Do you know who was high on him or why this didn't happen? We're talking about January of 89, right? Uh, January of, um, yeah, 89. That's right. Yeah. I listen, my, I was one foot out the door during that time. Um, so, uh, I don't remember much about what was going on and who was over. So, uh, I can't give you an, an accurate, uh, read on that one. Do you remember anything about, uh, Kendall Wyndham? Because it feels like they start to really tease the pairing of Barry and Kendall and Barry's trying to kind of bring Kendall along. Uh, and then we see Kendall turn on Eddie Gilbert the week after Butch Reed would debut. Uh, and afterwards, JJ would ra- raise both men's hand in victory and Kendall would hold up the four fingers to the fans, letting them know he had just joined the four horsemen. And the same weekend in an interview on worldwide wrestling, Barry would point out that Kendall had become a member of the four horsemen and they had reunited the Wyndham family. He said, now that KW is a horseman, uh, more people are going to stand up and take notice of what we're doing in the ring. 
because for the very last time, what I'm going to say is that horsemen are forever. And so are the Wyndham's. Uh, what'd you think of, uh, Kendall Wyndham giving an op being given an opportunity here to join his brother, Barry. It was more of an effort to keep the horsemen alive than it, than it was to really make a uh, Kendall a star. Look, Kendall, uh, was a great kid and a good worker, but he wasn't his brother. And, uh, did it work as good as anything else? And again, what you're seeing is the promotion reaching to keep the horsemen alive. When in effect, let's be honest, the horsemen are dead. Yeah. Kendall Wyndham lasted about a week, but I guess technically it counts. He wound up leaving, uh, not long after this happening and going back to Florida about a week after he's announced as a horseman, Ric Flair and the Wyndham's introduce hero Matsuda as their new manager. Uh, and he is a part of course of the Yamazaki corporation. And it's revealed that the Yamazaki corporation had purchased the contracts of the four horsemen. Um, what the Mm. fuck is this? This feels so off the rails. And I I know that everybody is very complimentary of Kendall Wyndham and, and hero Matsuda. And certainly they're deserving of our respect, but this does not feel like the four horsemen. No, this is again, go back to our, one of our shirts, on ProWrestlingTees.com, this is a coffin on roller skates, is what this is. This is also a company in transition. The Crockett's right now can have, I guess, let too much money slip through the cracks. There's so many uh, things that have been documented about what that was. They were going to be sold to Turner Broadcasting, and Turner Broadcasting did not have a fucking clue about how to run a wrestling program or wrestling company and that eventually played out in 2001 if what what was the corporation again yamazaki Yamazaki. okay yeah it would have been much better for a real yamazaki corporation to have money funneled in than it would be from tbs at that time i wish that had been a shoot to be honest with you so you're you're pretty sour on yeah yeah i'm sour on everything right now uh because uh, well, I'm, here's why I'm sour and everything. I'm sour and everything. Number one, because I grew up a fan of Jim Crockett promotions. I was fortunate enough to be a part of that. I was part of the end of the run of the territories, which was magical. And I saw a company that I love going downhill and with people that I love, Jimmy, David, Francis, and Jackie, and the people in the front office that I absolutely loved. That got me into wrestling, that trusted me, and I saw it being sold to a company that did not know what the fuck they were doing. And that's why I was upset. Uh, I did not want to work for Turner Broadcasting. I did not. Well, I ended up doing it, I know. But in that, in that, and this is, this show is not about, this show is about the horsemen. It's not about my feelings. But I did not want to work for them because I saw every Saturday how shitty TV was. JR on his podcast, uh, the Jim Ross report. And I've been on his podcast. We have discussed how Jim and I would tape a one hour show ins and outs for a one hour show. And it would take us six hours to tape the freaking thing because they were so disorganized at Turner broadcasting and really did not know how to produce their own TV show back then. Maybe it's not a fault of theirs. 
but, uh, it was, I, I never, I always went to TBS and always, not always, but most of the time walked away feeling that that was a good show, but these fuckers don't know how to produce one. So I was very unhappy. There you go. Let's talk briefly about the four horsemen makeup at this point. Uh, we've got Ric Flair, Barry Windham, Kendall Windham, Butch Reed, and Hiro mm-hmm. Matsuda. Mm. Um, it doesn't feel like this is the focus of the promotion at this time. Eddie Gilbert is in. Ricky Steamboat has just returned. It feels like a promotion in flux. Of course, we know it is. On the Saturday morning edition of Championship Wrestling on WTBS on February 4th, 1989, Flair and the Wyndhams officially introduce Hiro Matsuda as their new manager. And as the director of the Yamazaki Corporation, Matsuda announces he's purchased their contracts of the Four Horsemen, and he will officially be replacing James J. Dillon as the manager of the group. And the timeline would shake out like this. Dylan's last day with WCW is Tuesday, January 31st at the syndicated TV tapings. And this of course is the show that would air on February 4th. Uh, he would manage the Wyndham brothers as his last official act with the horsemen on worldwide wrestling. And then the next night, February 1st at the WTVS tapings in Atlanta is when flair and the Wyndham's introduced Matsuda as their new manager and that they were now a part of Matsuda's Yamazaki corporation as a result of the transition from the horseman being managed by JJ to the Yamazaki corporation, the four horsemen as a group go dormant until they're reunited later in the year. Now in real life, JJ has begun to work immediately for the world wrestling federation where he became a major player for Vince McMahon behind the scenes for several years before eventually returning to WCW during the nitro era. So all of a sudden, um, between September 10th and February 1st, you've got Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, and JJ Dillon. 60% of the original four horsemen are now in New York. And it's certainly the end of an era of the four horsemen. And I guess for Crockett promotions, um, yeah, well, listen, I, I'm, I'm not putting myself in, in the same vein as Tully, Arn, Flair, J.J., Ole, Wyndham. But the guy who was holding the stick would leave pretty soon after that as well. I mean, we were all bailing out. Uh, one of the first calls that J.J. made when he started to work for Vince was to me. J.J. was the one that set me up talking to Vince McMahon. And it's something that we are going to, if you come out to Dallas on July 9th and see our live show that we're going to talk about even more in detail. We were all leaving the Titanic because none of us had the confidence that TBS. And I guess by that time we all got to know Jim Hurd and Jack Petrick. We, none of us had the confidence that the ship was going to stay afloat. Uh, they brought in, uh, George Scott to be a booker. And George was so old school that he really didn't kind of fit in with what was going on. And I, I liked George a lot, but I remember going to some of his meetings saying, what the fuck's going on here? Uh, and that's right before I left. So, yeah, the, uh, we, were, the, we were leaving the sinking ship, and the, the horsemen were never the same. The promotion was never the same. 
Let me, uh, wrestling was never the same. Let me ask you this. How big of a loss do you think it was to Crockett for JJ to leave? Uh, it was, it was enormous. It goes back to what we were talking about a few moments ago. JJ got very good payoffs, not necessarily because of what he was doing on TV, but what he was doing behind the scenes. JJ is one of the most organized, one of the most intelligent men that I'd ever worked with in my life. He was one of the boys, but he was also a member of the office and he was, he had everything, had everything organized. I, I don't, Dusty wouldn't have been the booker he would have been without JJ working with him. Um, what was, what led to him leaving? What exactly led to him leaving? Yeah. I mean, is it just a better I, offer or, uh, you know, he, no. JJ would say he felt like the way that Turner was going to be handling the business was going right. to be too big of a departure from what he was used to. And he just wanted to see if he could get another gig somewhere else. Right. Uh, we all felt that way. That's exactly what it was. Listen, the, the, the Turner buyout of Crockett, if you can call it that was a shock to the system. We all saw it coming. We all knew it was happening. I knew I had a job. JJ, I'm sure knew he had a job, but did we want a job with them? The answer was no, we did not at that time. Eventually we all came back, uh, except for Tully, of course. And I look, I, I'm going to stop this. I'm not putting, I'm not going to put my name to this as, as part of all this, but Eventually, they all came back, with the exception of Tully. Uh, and what JJ said about why he left is the core reason why everybody left. Well, let's t- run through some questions we got on Twitter. We invited you guys to participate in the conversation and help shape the show. Uh, follow us there if you haven't already. It's at WHW Monday. Uh, and there, pinned to the top for several days, we asked you for some four horsemen questions. So let's get to it. Uh, Tony, let's try to do some rapid fire here with our answers okay, hope- so we can get through as many as we can. Well, you know, my brain is not rapid fire like it used to be. As a matter of fact, many parts of me are not as rapid fire as they used to be. That's what Lois and was you- telling me. Yeah. See, I knew I, boy, I threw you that softball. <laughs> you yeah, know what they I, say? If you throw a redneck, a softball, I, you go hit it out of the park. I, I heard you were throwing a lot of softballs over there. So Drew <laughs> on Twitter wants to know. Uh, who are some of the guys who are discussed as potential horseman members, but never made the cut? Well, the, obviously the, uh, the road warriors were discussed as members of the horseman. Nikita Koloff was discussed as a member of the horseman at one time. Uh, drew anybody who was a big name was discussed as a member of the horseman sting. Uh, they all came through the, the thought process there because the, the idea of the four horsemen was a big, one of the big ideas of what they were doing back then. Cage Nation wants to know, do you think Buddy Landale could have made it as a horseman? Uh, yes. I thought Buddy Landale was multi-talented. He just had personal problems that held him back. Um, Chad wants to know, what was the worst lineup of the four horsemen? Well, it would have to be the uh, the the last one we discussed with Butch Reed, a part of it. And Kendall, yeah. Kendall and... Uh, Hero Matsuda. That was the worst incarnation. That was that was four horsemen slash desperation. Let's talk about uh Jason Thompson. He had a great question here. He says, please talk about the JJ workout match that led to the War Games eighty seven where he used all the horsemen finishers. 
JJ has often said he thinks this is one of his best matches he ever had because he wrestled like a manager where he was able to use all the finishers, the, uh, you know, the, the spine buster, the slingshot suplex, um, the rack from Lex Luger, the figure four, but he didn't necessarily do any of them very well. He had lots right. of help from the horseman on the outside. And obviously he's, he's actually a professional wrestler. He's been in the business a long time. He could have carried off any of these moves, but he wrestled in such a way where he presented himself as this kind of clunky, clumsy manager. Uh, what are your memories of that match? The first war games? Yeah, well, the the warm up match, the workout match that JJ yeah. had against the enhancement talent, leading to the I, war I, games. Yeah, it was it was really well done. It was very entertaining. It was uh, a vignette that led to the war games. But in effect, it also told me what the finish in the war games is going to be. I mean, it wouldn't. I mean, JJ ended up submitting, and in the scheme of the horseman being a, this part and he being just the manager. You kind of knew that it was going to be JJ being the weakest link, and JJ ended up losing it. But I, I like the warm up. I, li- I like the the thought about all that. That was good thinking. That was good booking. Late to the Nitro Party wants to know um, what were you and Barry Windham drinking that got you the drunkest you'd ever been? Wow, that story has taken a uh, life of its own. We were in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was on tour with WCW as the ring announcer, and we were working the uh, forum in Los Angeles the next day, and that was back in the private planes. You know, you talked earlier about uh, Tully being bumped off the private planes. That was back during the private planes. We had two of them, uh, and there was not room for me, nor David Crockett, nor Barry Windham to go on the private planes. So what did we do? The three of us went out drinking. Uh, and Barry would say, Shivani, this is a kamikaze. Okay. Boom. We'd all shoot it. Now I've got a watermelon shooter for you. Boom. Barry knew all these drinks. And here is a star spangled banner. Have you ever had a star spangled banner? I have not. Oh, I'm telling you, you're going to see fucking stars. Boom. And I hit that. And we, we kept shooting things. Uh, and drinks that I didn't know, and he would name them all. He knew what he was doing. Now, Barry Windham is a big guy. Uh, David Crockett and I are not. David eventually disappeared. Uh, and I don't know if he just really disappeared that night or just kind of disappeared from my memory because my memory is getting foggy. Now, for some reason, I, I know you know how this is, Conrad, because you're drunk a lot. Uh, some For some reason... I don't remember how we got to Whataburger, but we ended up getting to Whataburger that night. And we ordered a Whataburger and a couple of them. And we ordered, you could get like 10 jalapeno peppers for a dollar. So we're all in there, and David's still with us at this time. We're all in there eating and just drunker and chicken. We're just, you know, pushing food down our gullet, which I know you are familiar with. And then eating jalapeno peppers. And Barry has the rental car and drops us off at the hotel. Now, Barry, this hotel had one of those hotels that had door that on the outside. Barry says, Shivani, I'll see you later. We're going to have to do this again. And so I walk towards the door in Albuquerque. I have a jacket on 
and I hear something go kathunk. And as I turn around hearing something go kathunk, I don't know what it was. I turn around and Barry is screeching out the parking lot and he's going to wherever he's going. Uh, I am so freaking drunk and full of food at this time that I just go into the hotel room and go face first kaboom on the bed. <laughs> when I, all right, when I wake up and I, to be honest with you, I don't know how we made the flight. I don't know who, I guess, I don't know. Barry woke me up, but I got up the next morning and I'm smelling something. I still smell Whataburger. And I, I don't know, did I just like a, you know, the cookie monster have Whataburger crumbs all over my front? That's not the case. Here's what happened, and here's how I heard the thump. The f- motherfucking Barry Wyndham had taken a Whataburger, had opened it up, and threw it, and it stuck on the back of my head. That was the thump. So as I go face first, I fall asleep with a Whataburger stuck in the back of my head. This is amazing. Isn't it amazing? And... I get up and I'm peeling the shit off and it's got uh, mustard or whatever sauce I have and fucking onions and everything. <laughs> and the next day, Wyndham says, did you enjoy your last Whataburger? And I said, go fuck yourself. So we got on the plane and now because we are on, uh, and we, I got to go to San Francisco that night. We're not spending the night in LA. Uh, we land in LA. We get to the forum earlier that day. And now my stomach is freaking rumbling. So I go to the bathroom, which is in the locker room and I'm taking a crap and I would, I know I'm, I'm sure I ate 10 jalapeno peppers. I have a feeling that eight of them came out whole. Uh, and I'm sitting there just, I mean, I'm in freaking pain. You ever taken a jalapeno pepper and wiped it on your asshole? I have not. That has not happened. Really? You sure? I'm sure. Okay. Well, that's what it felt like. Uh, and I'm in there crying and Barry Wyndham, who knows what's going on. He said, Shivani, that's what he called me. Like it was kind of half of what Hawk always called me. He said, Shivani, how you feel? And I said, I feel like shit. I loved your dad, blackjack Mulligan, but you can go fuck yourself. So Barry Wyndham got me slap ass drunk, had me sleep with a water burger on the back of my head. And then because I got slap ass drunk. All these whole jalapeno peppers flew at my asshole, and he was there on the other side laughing at me. Uh, and from that moment on, every time that Barry Wyndham wanted to uh, to go out to drink, I would decline uh, because I knew how he was. He always had that evil face, and he always would rub his hands together. I'm going to get you drunk. Now, I did go out with him sometime after that, but I tried to avoid Barry Wyndham. And... Uh, I know Flair is a legendary uh, partier and drinker, and the horsemen are, but, man, Barry Wyndham was one of the greats, was absolutely one of the greats, and could really hold his liquor. And he would really drink it instead of throwing it in a plant like Nature Boy Ric Flair. Um, Mr. Kelly wants to know, was there ever a discussion to put Larry Zabisco in the horsemen? Yes. Because Larry was a great talker and a great worker. Uh Mr. Gill on Twitter wants to know, and this is a good question. I don't think we've ever talked about this. Was there ever any heat between Rick and other members of the horsemen at the time? Obviously Rick being the, the kayfabe leader of the horsemen and obviously, uh, the top card of the act. Did he ever have any heat that you know of with any other specific performers? 
performers or members of the Horsemen? Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Me- members of the Horsemen. That's what we're getting. Yeah, at. I I know he and Arn bickered and argued a lot. Uh, I'm not so sure how much of that was on the square or not. Uh, he and Tully always got along. Again, Luger was kind of aloof, so he really didn't hang out with anybody. And of course, I think it's it's well known. And and I know Ole uh, is not what he used to be as far as his health has declined, but I know it's kind of well known that Ole has said that he thought Ric Flair was the shittiest worker of all time because he had the same match. There was probably some heat there, but I don't think any legitimate heat uh, with with any of the guys, with the exception of I mean I I remember Flair and Arn coming in from the road. There was a time, and this is back when we all came back to WCW. There was a time that we did the local promos wherever we were. And Flair was working a program with Junkyard Dog, and he was miserable about having to work with Junkyard Dog because, as we know, uh, Junkyard Dog was a great star and a great character, but was not the worker Ric Flair was. And Flair came in one day, and I've known Flair long enough because Flair would get to a point in his life to where he said, that's it. I'm not going to drink anymore. We all laughed at it. He said, starting a new life, right? He did that a lot. Starting today, I'm going to stop drinking, cut down on my drinking. I'm going to make sure that I work out every day. He and I shook hands. We said, and he said, I'm going to help you lose weight, shake hands. We're go- I'm going to have a, from now on, a new, a new outlook. And it never happened, of course. But one time they came in and, and Flair said to Arn, he said, look at us. Arn said, what do you mean? He said, look at us. We go out, we drink, we, we, we run around, we go crazy, and we stay up all night, and we come in, we got to do these fucking promos, and you, we've got to uh, work the next night. He said, we need to turn things around. Arn Anderson said, you're full of shit. I like to drink. I like to stay up all night. I like to wrestle. So shut the fuck up. And that was, the, that was a kind of a, one argument that I remember, but I remember them bickering a lot all the time. Whether or not it was really heat between the two, I don't know. But for me and the guys, it was pretty fucking entertaining. Uh, Chad on Twitter wants to know, Barry became a horseman in his prime. Was there ever any talk of Luger winning the world title from Rick and passing it to Barry? Barry Windham should have been the chosen one. That comes to us from Chad on Twitter. Chad, I, I appreciate your opinion on that. Uh, there was always talk about Luger becoming the world heavyweight champion. Whether he would pass it to Windham, I don't know. I'm going to be honest. I don't think there was ever consideration with Barry, about Barry Windham being the world heavyweight champion, which was probably wrong, and Chad would probably agree with that. Well, we're going to give uh, you a break until next week when we're going to come back with a brand new show. Go ahead and vote right now. We're going back to the poll. At Pritchard Show is where you can vote on Bruce's show, but where you can vote on this show is at WHW Monday. We get lots of questions on the Pritchard Show account wanting to know, where do I vote on Tony's poll? Well, here you go at WHW Monday. And if you find Tony's poll, let Lois know where it is. So let's run through this. Um, I've got six topics, Tony, and I want you to narrow it down. We're going to okay. cut, we're going to cut two. Do you want me to cut one from 85 and 87 or cut one from 98 and 2000? Hmm. Uh, 85 and 87. Keep them or cut them? Cut them. Okay, here we go. Uh, poll topic number one. This comes to us on July 7th, 1990, 
It's the most famous, at least in my opinion, Great American Bash from Baltimore, Maryland. This is where Sting finally wins the world title from the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. What might we talk about if Great American Bash 1990 wins the poll? Uh, we'll talk about Sting finally becoming the world heavyweight champion. And we'll also discuss uh, Tony Schiavone's commentary in that. Do you remember who my partner was? Uh, is that um, is that uh, Jim Ross? Yes, I think so. Uh, I'm I'm thinking now. I've got in my mind, boy, I'm 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 walking on thin ice here. I got in my mind a big show that Bobby Heenan and I did from Baltimore, and I'm sure it was in 1990. But I think we'll talk about Sting finally winning the world heavyweight title. Let's get to poll topic number two. It's a pretty big deal. Also, the same day, July 7th, 1996. It's hard to believe that this was 21 years ago. It's Bash at the Beach, 1996, where we have Hulk Hogan join the New World Order. Hell has frozen over. Hulk Hogan is a bad guy. What might we talk about if the 1996 Bash at the Beach wins the poll? Well, we're obviously going to talk about the turn of Hogan because it was a uh, really a a seminal moment in in wrestling a lot of people have commented and uh have criticized what i've said in the past on many matches many pay-per-views but i have gotten a lot of positive feedback to what i said at the end of that uh and the trash going in the ring i think we need to talk about the turn did tony shivani really know that hulk hogan was going to turn was bobby heenan's comment when hulk hogan came out the wrong thing to do was it freestyling or was it planned and how did that change the business let's talk about poll topic number three this one certainly changed the business it's july 6th 1998 we're coming up on the 19 year anniversary of the wcw monday night nitro when bill goldberg beat hulk hogan to become the world heavyweight champion what might we talk about if the georgia dome nitro from july 6th wins the poll we need to talk about Goldberg, and I know we talked about Goldberg on the very first episode of WHW, uh, but we need to talk about Goldberg, and we also need to talk about uh, Hulk Hogan agreeing uh, to do the job and what that meant for wrestling at that time. Last but certainly not least, July 9th, 2000. This is Bash at the Beach 2000. This is probably most famous for being the show where Hulk Hogan and Vince Russo had a spat. And Hulk Hogan winds up walking out on the company. Lawsuits would follow. Everybody's got their own world title belt. And before you know it, Booker T is our world champion. What might we talk about if Bash at the Beach 2000 wins the poll? I know I'm going to get some people pissed off by saying this. And one of the people I'm going to get pissed off by saying this is my good friend, Vince Russo, which I don't know if you and Bruce Pritchard can say that. But uh, we're going to talk about whether that was really a work or not. Uh, let's just I leave it. it at, let's just leave it, was, it at that. Yeah. Well, all right. So here you go. Here's our four topics. Again, the great American Bash 1990. Many people regard it as one of the best shows in WCW history. We see the coronation of sting. He finally becomes the world champion. What a historic moment that was. Uh, maybe only trumped by the next one though. Hulk Hogan becomes a bad guy. Bash at the beach. 1996 is poll option. Number two. Uh, it was certainly a changing of the guard uh, for WCW when on July 6th, 1998, Goldberg became the world champion. We talked about it a little bit in our very first episode. 
We'll break down the entire episode of Nitro here, though, if poll option number three is victorious. Last but certainly not least, as if we haven't heard about Vince Russo enough, let's talk about the time he did some business with Hulk Hogan at Bash at the Beach 2000. There's your four poll topics. Cruise on over and vote right now at WHW Monday on Twitter. If you haven't already, go check us out on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. It's a big deal because we've got lots of horseman memories on there. We're going to give away a couple of books and we want you to see you on July 9th. That's at whwlive.com. We're coming to you, Dallas. We're bringing Bruce Pritchard and a couple of surprises as well. We're going to cover all things Tony Schiavone and the WWF. And Tony, I can't help but notice as I look at my clock, it feels like it's about that time, man. It is that time, Conrad. Thank you very much. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a Texas death match. And this is coming to you from Los Angeles and the forum. It's Conrad Thompson against Barry Windham for the Western States Heritage title. Whatever the fuck that means, it's for the title. And now the match is underway and Barry Windham's got the claw on Conrad. He's got him down. Conrad trying to go for the dick shot, but he can't reach it. He can't reach the dick shot. Oh, my God. What is what is going on in the back of Conrad's trunks? It seems that there are jalapeno peppers flying out of Conrad's ass. And now there's a Whataburger flying out of his ass. Wyndham's got the claw on Conrad. And now out of the back. Oh, my God. It's Dave Silva running in with a sombrero. We're out of time. We got to go. The tape machines are rolling. See you next week on What Happened When. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen.